Welcome to Just Checking In. I'm Becky Buckman. And I'm Kiana Corliss. Each week, we'll use humor, a little irony, and definitely some self-deprecation to dive into the world of high-tech corporate comms. We'll use our expertise and less-than-serious take on the tech news cycle to bring you the best in the business across comms and media for one-of-a-kind insights and perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Get ready to laugh and maybe even start a tweet thread. This is Just Checking In. We are back. I'm so excited. It only took us a year. I know. I know. And what a year it's been. I would say the environment for this season of just checking in, Kiana, is a little different than last year. It is a little bit different. And I will say anyone who does our job on a daily basis could tell you why it takes uh, a year to, <laughs> to get this done. And it's been a year. But you know what? You're right. Like last year, it was all about the train wrecks. And I feel this year it's about getting out of the train wreck. Exactly. Every episode, we found an opportunity to talk about Elizabeth Holmes, who I guess bought a one-way ticket to Mexico, which I guess she didn't intend to use. I thought that was interesting. I thought that was weird because did she just like go on united.com and is like, F yeah. this, I'm going to Mexico. Yeah. yeah and she's got, I think she's pregnant again. Was she going to bring her kids? Was she going by herself? I don't know. But anyway, that's all, that's a whole other story. But we had that and we had the WeWork drama, the high corporate drama this season is going to be related to Elon and Twitter, right? We have some yes. discussion about that. Okay. So we still have a little bit of a train wreck going. We do. Unfortunately, the industry is in a little, I don't want to call the industry a train wreck because of course we're, I'm long-term bullish, but it's just a different environment for, if you're a tech comms person these days, right? The news cycle is different. You've got different internal dynamics. You're trying to make do with less. It may be a good opportunity for people to reset and really think about their priorities. Well, and you know, if you've been laid off, you have more time to listen to our podcast. Exactly. Am I allowed to say that, Becky? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is unfortunate though. Maybe that's another reason to talk about the value of brand building, how even in tough times, we can talk about communicating to your org and your CEO, how brand building is still important, even in a difficult time. I will say this. I think it's been a very interesting few weeks this past week. It's just been one layoff after another. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. kind of like, if you're not laying off people, are you even in tech? And I think that different companies handled them differently. And mm -hmm. you saw companies that traditionally had incredibly strong brands and incredibly strong sort of employee engagement really botched their layoff communications and it showed and you know it's a whole different world out there with LinkedIn and journalists can go right to the source they don't have to wait for the comms person to tell them what's going on so I think it's actually been really interesting it is to me one of those times where it's like the ever-changing role of the comms professional like I don't know how many times my job has sort of changed yeah but here we are again um so, no, exactly. Know, having podcasts like this is so important. <laughs> Not to toot our own horn. Well, let's talk about who we're going to hear from this season, because I think we have an amazing lineup. Our first guest who people are going to listen to shortly is Brad Stone, Love top him. editor, right? Love and author. Him. And so we're going to talk about Bezos. So many good nuggets in that podcast. He's so interesting. And the book was so fascinating in terms of how he built the business, sort of his attitude towards employee comms and corporate comms. And then there's just some like good stories. I mean, we talked about his divorce <laughs> and yeah. that for a little bit. Jeff so Bezos nothing is, else right, pay for right. that. Not Brad's. Yeah. Jeff Bezos. Not Brad's. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Poor Brad. We talked about Jeff Bezos, which I thought was so fun to talk about. 
Exactly. It was kind of like a little bit of Harry and Meghan type drama there, which we always enjoy injecting into the I do love some Harry. I can't believe Harry hasn't come on our podcast yet, honestly. I know. I know because he's like, he's he's, done everything else. (laughs) He's like Sam Bankman Freed. He talks to everybody, you know? I mean, we probably could have gotten SBF on this podcast. Why didn't we try that? It's too late. You guys, next season are getting Harry and SBF. Oh my gosh, totally. And then uh, also we've got some great journos on the podcast. We've got tips on broadcast TV from Laura Batchelor at CNBC. And, She's amazing. Um, Joe Williams, who I think, although he was longtime journo and now he's doing some consulting. Joe's interview was so interesting in terms of like, how he worked with PR people and his best practices. So this was a lot of news you can use. Laura's was a lot of news you can use. Sean Garrett, who started Mixing Board, who I know a lot of us comms folks know, but he was like the first comms person at Twitter. So highly relevant conversation there. A lot of the kind of bigger picture industry thoughts we were talking about a few minutes ago. I think Sean has a lot of good comments on those and advice for comms people in this environment. Yeah. And then Judy Shaw, who she has had such an interesting career and and the people she's interviewed at the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. So she had a lot of really interesting things to say. And then uh, the author of Corporate Burnout, Jenny, who is, I just find this so interesting because I do think that in our profession, we have a lot of corporate burnout. Mm-hmm. So I'm super excited to see what she has to say as or share that out with the world. I know. And on the topic of burnout, didn't you, after last season, you just engineered a, some nice little PR for yourself on the burnout topic, didn't you, Kiana? I got my yeah. own little Wall Street Journal article. My parents were so proud. Um, <laughs> I took what I call a life recovery run. Uh, life recovery. Okay. And uh, I took a couple of months off and then I took a role outside of Silicon Valley, still in tech. And, you know, I'll sort of ease my way back into the crazy. A lot of us go really hard for a really long time. And I happen to be a runner. Runners know that you actually can't go really hard every day or you'll never get faster because it's not Mm -hmm. good for your muscles. And so you do what's called recovery runs, which is you still go for a run, but it's like an easy run. And, you know, I realized uh, in training for a race that I did in the fall that I just needed a life recovery run and I needed to sort of reset and recalibrate. And, you know, I think that our job is really hard and there's a reason we have a lot of burnout in our mm-hmm. industry and in our in our gigs. I think taking care of yourself is super important. Very well said. I agree. Could That's the most more. serious thing I'm going to say for the rest of the podcast. I like okay. to be sarcastic okay. and sassy. Perfect. Okay. Well, listen, we've just gotten a ton of great feedback from our listeners who are excited about this season. So I'm ready to go and hear from Brad Stone. We had to do this for our fans. We're back, baby. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Super excited about our guest today, Brad Stone, who I think many of you probably know, but he is the senior executive editor for global technology at Bloomberg News. But he's also the author of some really, really awesome books, many of them about Jeff Bezos and Amazon. The most recent one, Amazon Unbound. Both uh, Becky and I just read it. And this entire podcast will be about the Lauren Sanchez affair. I'm just kidding. It will be. Because <laughs> we have a high-low strategy on the Just Checking In pod. We're going to talk about EBITDA and logistics, but also Lauren Sanchez. That's how we it, roll. That's right. We're trying to hit all the audiences. But welcome, Brad. You are a legend in the tech corp comms world. So the fact that we have you on is pretty freaking exciting. Thank you, Kiana. And thank you, Becky. It's really great to be here. And I'm honored to be on the podcast. We're honored to have you. Well, okay. So you've been covering Amazon 
forever. What was sort of the genesis of these books? I mean, this is obviously second one. How did this come together? At what point do you think, all right, I think I've got a book as opposed to, you know, a series of news articles? I was, I think it was 2019 and I was thinking about my next book project. I had just finished a book about Uber and Airbnb called uh, The Upstarts. And I was sort of surveying the field and thinking, you know, fairly broadly about the next book. And throughout that time, I continued to get interview requests like this one about my first book, The Everything Store. <laughs> and um, I was giving speeches and I was talking about it. And I, I, I was less and less confident about my grip on the material because Amazon had changed so much. So the company that I had written about in a book that was published in 2013 was, you know, it was an e-commerce company. Uh, AWS was less important. Um, it was very much a, a disruptor in the book business. The, the Kindle at the time of the Everything Store had been an important product. Amazon Publishing had posed a menacing threat to the book industry. And those were the issues in 2013. But surveying the landscape in 2019, it was just, you know, it was it was so different. Um, AWS was the, the profit generator for the entire company. Alexa and not the Kindle was the big novel product that the company was putting a lot of muscle behind. And Bezos had totally changed. And with that kind of sort of intuition, based as with all things uh, for all journalists in insecurity <laughs> and the feeling <laughs> like I didn't know this this story as well as I was pretending to, I thought, oh, maybe there's room for part two of the story. Before we dive into the specifics, and it's interesting because it's almost like each chapter of the book delves into one of these new initiatives, you know, whether it's Alexa, whether it's buying Whole Foods, whether it's Bezos and the Washington Post, which, you know, is more of a personal project, but also very interesting. Given your first book, how cooperative was Amazon as you put this together? It's an interesting question because, Becky, you might remember after the first book came out, Amazon and, and the Bezos family in particular didn't love the everything store. Well, well they, it, they give you a one-star review. Well, uh, very specifically, <laughs> very specifically, Mackenzie, <laughs> then Mackenzie Bezos did, but that had been directed by by Jeff. And he was he was upset by a few things in the book. And in particular, the sensitivity around his biological father, who I had found for the Everything Store, and the way that I had kind of handled that. And um, and so I was I worried that there was sort of bad blood lingering in the air. So I sent a couple of, of notes. I, I sent one to Jeff and I explained what I wanted to do. They got back to me and through a series of, I would say, kind of negotiations over, over well, or discussions over what I wanted to do and how I would go about it, um, they, they agreed and he agreed. And he, he allowed me to talk to uh, senior colleagues and, and uh, friends. And, and so I wouldn't say it was a warm embrace. Okay, so Jeff never talked to me personally uh, for Amazon Unbound. But, you know, I've always viewed that as maybe being a little bit of an advantage. I mean, he's someone who, you know, has such a strong perspective. Um, it's 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 possible to get that perspective from others, uh, and but but not be dominated by it. And so my approach is to talk to as many employees, current and former, and partners, and adversaries, and friends, and regulators, and kind of triangulate a real story. I'm not I'm not tell, I'm not writing a biography of Bezos. I'm telling I'm writing a biography of Amazon and and the and then the changes that he and Amazon went through over the course of the ten year period that the book covers. So. It wasn't a warm embrace, but I did. They they did cooperate. I, I ended up talking to a couple dozen executives and really got what I needed to tell that that story. I mean, I mean, that's how you and I met 
because I was working, my boss at the time was Adam Solipsky, uh, who is now the CEO of AWS. He was not at the time. Brad and I literally met because, and, and to be fair, like I'll say this wholeheartedly, like Adam wasn't going to speak to you unless Jeff was okay with it. And Jeff was like, yeah, go for it. And you did. And that is why the, the six page narrative that you talked about throughout the whole book was triggering the entire time. Because I have written so many six page right. narratives. Well, it was funny because, you know, Adam was great and he helped a lot and subsequently became the CEO of AWS. And I'm I, I feel when I hear him speak that like you can tell he's now an Amazon executive. I'm not I'm not saying he was wildly forthright in, in the conversation I had with him when he was at Tableau, but a little more relaxed in the public presentation. And when he's talking now, you know, all all of those Amazon executives, they are they are fiercely scripted and they speak with a purpose. And when uh, we had a nice talk, you know, I was trying to get Adam to reminisce about his first go round at, uh, at AWS. That might have been one of, one of my favorite interviews to sit in on because it was like this world that I had zero privy into. Your book wasn't published yet. I had zero privy into. I had no idea what the early days of AWS were like. And um, it was actually very interesting. I think you you did that very well in terms of like creating this like landscape or the culture that was like happening and why things sort of happened the way they did. And I think a lot of that had to do with sort of Bezos's personality. But that is the big challenge in, in, in these books about Amazon. It's like, I'm trying to tell a story and the story in Amazon Unbound is how the, you know, how the, the company that was worth $200 billion with that that obsession with book publishing and the Kindle becomes the billion dollar company that is striking fear into the hearts of companies up and down the business ecosystem. And so it's a, it's really a chronology. And you mentioned how I organized the book that there are chapters on, you know, Alexa and the Amazon Go store in India and the Washington Post and Blue Origin and ultimately the implosion in Bezos's personal life. But while the chapters are kind of categories, I'm also trying to tell a story. And that was what I was trying to do in the AWS chapter, too. It's like, okay, where? And it was so tricky. It was like a puzzle. Where in the timeline of the last 10 years do you tell a story about AWS that is, of course, a 20-year story with things happening all the time? And it was challenging. And I think the way I solved the AWS chapter in particular was really rooting it in that year. I think it was 2015 when they started to real, reveal their financials, when they started to roll out artificial intelligence services, and all these critical things happened. This is kind of a, I don't know, it might be a tough question to answer. But as you said, the number of new businesses that this company got into over the last 10 years is mammoth. And you know you document most of them, if not all of them. But What's the common thread that you see running through there? Like after writing kind of exhaustively about each of these new initiatives, what's the thread that ties them together? What do these projects say about Amazon and or about Bezos? So there's two ways to look at this. I'll give you the optimistic way first. There's a rel relentless inventiveness that I threaded through the history that I identify in the book. And it's, it's Bezos like being a wellspring, an annoying wellspring of new ideas and pushing his team and breaking out teams and isolating them and say, work on vision recognition technology and let's see how we can introduce that into the retail experience and maybe make cashiers unnecessary and lower the cost of running a, a store. Or, you know, can we 
uh, create a Star Trek computer that answers to any questions that you can speak at it and personally overseeing that. So it's a relentless inventiveness. But the other way to look at it, Becky, the pessimistic way is a kind of um, dissatisfaction with the core business. And this goes back, I think, to the Everything Store, too, where, you know, he was all about retail. He was a retail disruptor. He was Time's Man of the Year in, in 1999 because of Amazon.com. And that was it. And then the dot-com bust happened, and the stock price went from the mid-hundreds all the way down to the single digits. And I think around that time, he realized, he understood that in some ways he had picked maybe the least leveraged business of the new age. You know, the the almost the, you know, the the certainly the lowest margin business, and that to really become an internet company and to compete at least for hiring with the likes of Google and Facebook, that he really had to invent his way out of the box. So, you know, when you look at all the new businesses that I chronicle at Amazon Unbound. And in fact, some of them, they've had to dial way back. They're, they're, the investment was too high. The headcount was too high. And, and now we've entered into a different economic uh, context. You know, they've laid a lot of people off and lowered the investment. But the, the common thread is, you know, the, that the company almost needs to be inventive. Because if you don't, you eventually slow down. But the fact is that the core business is one where the margins are low, competition is high, and the business is not all that great. What does he say all the time? I had never really understood this, this day one, this fixation on day one. Maybe you could talk about that versus day two. It's all about day, day one. Two. <laughs> <laughs> but day, day one is, is it really, I think it, it symbolizes a mindset for Amazon. The future is ahead. We're in the very beginning of the internet. Um, there's so much more to kind of invent. You know, we're, we're not a big company. We shouldn't rest on our laurels. So it's, yeah. it's an invention mindset. And look, I mean, you know, it's funny. We're witnessing this, uh, you know, this story at Twitter right now, you know, and Elon has has fired, you know, 70 percent of the employees and is having people sleep in the office. Right. They're too big and now too public a company to force people to sleep underneath their desks and to work like that. But day one is the enemy of the entropy that encrusts every large company. And so it's his way of kind of creating a slogan that motivates employees. Now, to the extent to which it is successful, particularly now that he's no longer really there and the company employs a million people, you know, it may be day two. And then to answer the second part of your question, you know, day, day two is going home at five o'clock and seeing the kids, I guess, or, or running a little bit uh, uh, less fiercely. Day two is way better for your mental health. Well, I will say this, though, having worked in Silicon Valley for some time now, the day one mentality is actually, I think, pretty prolific in other startups. And there's a lot of CEOs who sort of take this day one mentality. They don't have a million employees, so to speak. But I do think it's actually pretty prolific. One of the things I thought was really interesting was when the time story came out. And it was, I think, sort of the first time that uh, it was really like a true negative story about the culture at, at Amazon and what was really going on there. And it actually became, I think, the first time that Amazon starts defending itself in the press. And obviously, I think Jay Carney was was the head of comms at the time. I thought that was a, a really interesting move. There's like two schools of thought is the no comment and the to just like you know what? No, we're going to dispute this. Obviously, they went with the the latter. What was sort of your experience with that? Because I'm assuming you were also sort of covering the company at the time 
too. Well, it's funny because I had written in in the Everything Store about the culture, and the depiction wasn't all that dissimilar. It's a tough culture. The the day one mentality, uh, as we as we talked about, you know, can be slightly uncomfortable for employees. Um, I think they thought the Time story, you know, fo- highlighted too many negative anecdotes. The image that sticks with you, of course, is employees crying at their desks. And look, I mean, the story I thought was very fair, and you know, and depicted some of the uh, some of the elements in Amazon's culture, like you know, stack ranking and the way in which promotions are handed out, quite fairly. So, how did they react? The weird thing, but the very big company-like thing, in terms of how they reacted, was how long they waited until after the story came out to publish a rebuttal. And so, in that respect, it almost to me, served to kind of reignite the story in people's minds as opposed to really rebutting it. It felt a little ham-fisted. Do you know how many emails were sent between the time that that story went out (laughs) and when they had? I can, the over-under is about 405. But but Carney, but that was, I'm trying to remember, this was when they reacted very aggressively, right? Oh, very aggressively. And it was was surprising, I think, to a lot of people that... There had been... um, a tendency at Amazon to not really respond to to bad press, to be very distant, to not engage with the media that that much, and and it, it, it had gone in waves during the '90s when Bezos was personally building his brand. He would go on CNBC. I mean, he was he was omnipresent. I was a reporter at Newsweek back then, and I talked to him all the time. And mm. he was fighting for the survival of the company. And then. After the dot-com bust, I think he felt a little burned, probably unfairly pilloried as a embodiment of the internet's uh, broken dreams. And he didn't do anything for years, maybe one or two wired um, stories when he he had things he thought were cool. And then he kind of reemerged around the time as the Kindle, uh, but he would only speak. No other Amazon executive would ever speak. And... Um, and the company was very quiet and, and secretive. I, I think if they sent 405 emails, it was not only because the topic of the story and how you know they felt it was unfair, at least, uh, but also like should they really change their cultural inclination to not respond to bad press? So they had to completely change their posture and policy on interacting with the press to go and 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 write that medium post. But then he like totally does it with Trump. Like, do you remember where he's like, Carney literally was like, dude, you should sit this one out. And Bezos like, let's come up with, you know, interesting, like good tweets well, to come back at him. This is when Trump, when, I forget what year this was. Was this 2016? Well, was, this is when Trump. It was when he was running. Yeah. And Trump uh, has said a, a couple of negative things about Bezos. And, and Bezos, uh, again, probably after a, a robust exchange of emails, uh, internal emails tweeted in response, and I think offered to send Donald to space. Oh, right, and, on a Blue Origin rocket. Yes, or and that was okay. the beginning of a of a quite tense relationship with, uh, of course, the candidate who ultimately got elected. Yeah. What? What? I, one other question on culture before we kind of move on, because I think there's some other comms and PR topics we we've got to get to, as well as Bezos's personal life, um, of course, but. You know, the the New York Times story obviously was really unflattering about the really tough culture at Amazon. But what I was struck with, like reading through your your various chapters, that really hard nosed management style, which starts with Bezos and trickles down to his top executives. Like I forget the guy that 
you know, some guy was the best man at his wedding, but then he took a job at Target and then Amazon wound up suing him, you know, over his non-compete. The two guys never spoke again, you know, and I was like, God, this is hardcore. It strikes me that, I mean, is that really tough culture part of what makes the company successful? Right. And by the way, you were talking about the former head of the of the um, the operations team, a guy named Dave Clark. And one of his uh, longtime friends and sort of mentors, Arthur Valdez, um, when he didn't get the top job, went to work for Target and it did introduce friction into their relationship. And I think it probably is representative of, you know, how driven and, and competitive all of these executives are. Does it is it part of what makes the company successful? Sure, but it, it may have some drawbacks. Uh, for example, I tell a story in the book where Jeff, and this was probably um, over a decade ago, was uh, sitting at a meeting with, a, it was a female executive who presented him with one of those six-page documents. And somewhere deep in the appendix, she had a statistic wrong. And he, of course, being Jeff Bezos, identifies it, rips up the piece of paper, and throws it across the table at her and walks out. <laughs> and that actually, you know, does... I remember reading that story, Brad. I got to tell you, the first time I ever had the six page narrative, and I sat down, and you guys, they sit around quietly. No one says a word for about five or six minutes, and they just read everything you've written and you see people making notes. And I remember the first time I'd be like, are they, are they writing good notes? Is that a bad note? What did they just write? What's looking? And eventually you just kind of get over it. But like, it is a very daunting thing when you're when it's not going to get ripped up in half so, so i can only yeah, so to get imagine. it ripped up to pull a nancy pelosi and rip yes. it up like that's yeah. hardcore it's, i mean that's it is a very hardcore. intense thing when it's actually going to be received very well when it's going to be ripped up i mean mine was never right. ripped up i would just like to say <laughs> <laughs> i mean i would say look i mean the company had tremendous success it it rode a wave of of internet growth and cloud computing growth and the, the culture and the documents and the way that Jeff ran the company was clearly responsible for, for some of that. But I think we also have to put Amazon today in the context of, you know, a company that has whose stock price has fallen by half that, you know, may be laying off, you know, 40,000 employees in the next couple of months. And I think we can also say that the culture and the and the and the ferocity of the executives who who remain maybe aren't enough by by itself to you know to to rescue the company to keep it a perpetually day one company i mean the one thing is like bezos has moved on he is executive chairman who as far as i can tell you know does not spend a lot of time in the in the daily operations that executive part is perhaps increasingly untrue um, i know he's an active board member and board chairman so like if the culture was there to preserve a sense of entrepreneurialism after the founder CEO leaves, I think the jury is still out on whether the culture was actually strong enough to do that. Good point. Can we please talk about how you were talking to a murderer or an alleged murderer? Like the dude, oh, this right. is really beginning or really early in the book. The book evolved in a couple of very unexpected ways, right? In 2019, I think I'm writing a boring business book. And the National Enquirer story comes out and it's this tawdry, salacious tale. But the other kind of crazy thing that happened was for the chapter, I think it's four or five, where I'm writing about the international business. I decide I'm going to focus on India. I go to India. Amazon in India is a great story. But I think, you know, if I could just sort of interrupt it, you know, in the middle with another tale to represent that this is a global expansion, that'd be great. And I, I choose Mexico 
Um, it's a nice contrast. And I find that the former CEO who's left the company and he said, yeah, I'm going to be in, in San Francisco. We meet, we have a great talk, we go for a walk. And as you mentioned, Kiana, a couple of, well, I'd been trying to follow up with him and he wasn't responding. And I, I think I just Googled him. And it turned out that not only, and look, this is actually not, we should stop laughing because it's nice. really horrible. It's funny. Not only had he. <laughs> well, it's well, tragic. tragic. This isn't funny. Tragic yeah, he, funny. he had been, he had allegedly not only beaten his wife and been imprisoned, but then was released and authorized uh, an assassination of her. Oh, my God. And then had fled and disappeared across the border and has and to my knowledge has never been seen since. So that was the craziest part for me is like I was reading and I'm like, wait, what what, what just happened? I was waiting for the part on Lauren Sanchez. And now we've got a we've got an alleged murder. This is amazing. OK, so now we'll get back to Lauren Sanchez. That totally reminded me of that. So this is so interesting because she sort of shows up in the book when you're talking about she was at like his party for Manchester well, by the Sea. Prime video. Yeah. So right. this is like right when around Prime Video. So apparently they like meet and then and then later in the book you sort of explore the whole I mean like he was exploited. I mean there was black I mean there was like all sorts of there was like a bingo card of nonsense. So I, like just right. I'm gonna let you take it from here because it's just amazing. Well I want to put it in context okay because it's actually it, it wasn't. It didn't end up being a tangent to the book. It's very much part and parcel of the evolution that he is going through as Amazon is growing to a billion-dollar company, and he is um, not. Not only has his wealth astronomically increased, but the pursuit of new businesses has brought him almost out of the lab, out of the out of the warehouse, mm -hmm. and into the world. And you know, because he's inventing Alexa, he is holding robot conferences and meeting AI experts. And because he is expanding into India, he's going to India and meeting with Modi. And because he's creating Prime Video and actually had the intuition that streaming was an opportunity for Amazon, you know, he is in Hollywood and he buys a home and then he buys the home next to that home. And then he has a hit movie and he says, we should have a... And by the way, in every case... He very strategically uses his fame to amplify Amazon's efforts. So we talked about how for years he did nothing. Well, after the Kindle, he realized that his fame was almost the best PR asset that Amazon had. And he would go to India and ride on an elephant or hold a robot conference and come out in an exoskeleton. You know, he was willing to put himself out there. Yeah. And for Hollywood, it was it was, he's going to throw a party with celebrities and he's going to go to the Golden Globes and sit at the front and be made fun of by Jimmy Kimmel. And it introduces him into a larger world. And a couple of things happen. Yeah. It's not just that he meets Lauren Sanchez, but that he loves it. He loves hobnobbing with famous people. He loves being in the front row. And he loves the stature and frankly, loves the t attention. Well, it's understandable. He was, at the, he was a nerd. Yeah. And now he isn't. Yeah. Like, let's He's a cool <laughs> let's kid. Clear about that. He's now cool he's cool. <laughs> but at the same time, right? So what, while this is part, while in some sense this makes sense in the evolution of Jeff Bezos, in another sense, it does not because it was just so messy and unplanned and, yeah, and un-Amazonian. So I mean, when you talk to these executives, did they come clean with you and just be like, I could not believe it? I mean, they were I have all to think two a one stunned. Yeah. Yeah. But in some respects, in others, maybe not so much, because the other piece of this is that, you know, Mackenzie, uh, his first wife, 
did not enjoy those forums, right? She did not really appear with him, go on trips with him. Um, they when when Amazon was launching the fashion business, uh, it spo- uh, uh, Jeff sponsored the Met Ball. So again, same playbook. He's going to go dress up, and, and this is 2012 or something, or 14, and, and he's going to use his fame to amplify Amazon's efforts. And he brings Mackenzie to the Met Ball, and she looks like she would rather be anywhere else. So, you know, when you it's, it's, it's all in hindsight, but I think the feeling, you it's know, almost my, like my, he was changing and she wasn't. I mean, this might be yeah. a very or oversimplified and fair way to say it, but yeah, he I think was it's changing right. and she could care less. Or he, yeah, or he they liked, grew apart. Yeah. He enjoyed yeah. the ticket to the ball, and she did and not. She was like, you know, what? she take it or leave it. And so Lauren Sanchez is, you know, she'll she'll take the ticket. She to loves the, ball. the Met Ball. <laughs> she loves it. <laughs> she loves it. Loves the front seats. Will you know? Loves being on camera on Instagram. You know her. It what? It's she's one of my most enjoyable follows on Instagram because she is just out there every day. And, you know, it's uh, and so he, he, you know, he it was surprising in the way in which it blew up was very unusual for disciplined Mr. Bezos. But perhaps, you know, when you like look at the whole context, it's not that surprising. Well, and I, I think like, you know, for someone who kept, you know, the AWS revenue a secret forever because he was so guarded, but then was like so frivolous with his you know, extramarital affair, you're like, you got to switch these, homie. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. And you know what's all, this is, we're jumping ahead in the timeline, but well, I mentioned that only Jeff could talk for a long time on behalf of Amazon. Um, in fact, they didn't even want Amazon employees going to to conferences, you know, way, way back when. And I find it remarkable that when Jeff is on stage now, Lauren is by his side, that when he's giving awards or grants or um, going to the climate conferences, um, she is there giving the interviews with him. It's so it's and that I sort of wow. can't explain. Yeah, that's interesting. Let's talk about Bezos is for a guy whose company was never very collaborative with reporters. He pulled off like the PR jujitsu masterclass, whatever you want to call it. So this story is exploding in the National Enquirer, and it turns out that all this stuff was leaked by Lauren Sanchez's brother. And then there's all these allegations that maybe it's politically motivated because Trump hates the Washington Post, which he owns. And so what happens with this like Medium post that he writes? And, and were you surprised that he did this? The whole thing was shocking. But let me try to set the context and rewind. I've almost lost the dates now, but I think we're at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. I might be a year off, but I think that's when it is. And the National Enquirer breaks a story that, uh, you know, Bezos is conducting an extramarital affair. And of course, he's at the point time, the richest man in the world. So the news spreads like wildfire. And Jeff says to, you know, Jay Carney, I'm going to just address this head on. And he writes this remarkable medium post where he makes some ties, some insinuations and draws some connections between David Pecker, uh, the head of the National Enquirer, the company that owns the Enquirer, and and Donald Trump, an avowed enemy of of Bezos and Amazon that had been interfering with a couple of Amazon's Pentagon contracts. And then uh, the government to Saudi Arabia, which had considered an investment in the National Enquirer and which had been responsible for the death of a Washington Post columnist, Mm -hmm. Jamal Khashoggi. And the insinuation was that the whole story was 
a former blackmail was um, a political embarrassment, a political hit job, and and motivated, you know, not by salacious gossip, but by all these other factors. We'd have to go reread it, but he didn't come out and say it, but he he certainly raised the questions. And yeah, the media ate it up because, you know, this was the the kind of thing that, let's face it, the Trump administration, you know, was capable of doing. And certainly the Saudis were capable of doing. And we if know that, that they... If that was the truth, I would have believed it. For what right. it's worth, mm-hmm. like, yeah. if it was the yeah. truth, I would have right. been like, yeah, okay, and, it makes sense. And we know they hacked phones and they used Pegasus software. And, and, and who knows, Bezos's phone might have been hacked. But what I found was a sort of Occam's razor explanation for the whole thing. And it was through, you know, the laborious interviewing of everyone who was involved, uh, all the primary characters, um, was that, in fact, you know, it was Lauren's brother, Michael Sanchez, who, whatever his intentions were, and and they they may, may have been good, um, he may have gotten kind of lost in his efforts to, to, uh, to spin it, um, went and and gave the information to the Inquirer and even dummied up. Uh, the idea that he had had a dick pic, which he never did. did get That's the first what time that mean? phrase has ever been uttered on just checking which, in. I just want to. I just which is a failure of the podcast, <laughs> Becky. That is. I'm here to. I'm here to loosen things up. <laughs> Thank you, Brad, for writing that wrong for us. But yeah, he pulled a photo from a gay porn site, and he presented it to the Inquirer, <laughs> and they had thought that they had the photo in question, but yes. they did not, and so. You know, looking at it through this lens, you don't want to say that Bezos's media post was cynical because I actually do believe in the moment he probably did think that there might be some political motivations. Um, But certainly he was he was very um, he was a little devious in how he ended up uh, manipulating the media and using his ownership of the post and the murder of Jamal Khashoggi as a little bit of a shield against uh, the, the crisis that had engulfed him. So it seems like at that point, Bezos sort of takes on his own PR strategy. When this is all unfolding, like how do you sort of manage it? Do you reach out to him? Do you reach out to Amazon PR? Like, are you getting no comment? What sort, like, how were they doing this? Well, the first thing I should admit is that I was delighted. I'm like, (laughs) are you kidding me? This is great. This is great stuff. Um, no, I mean, Amazon was not talking. They, I frankly, I think most most uh, people, the people I was working with at Amazon, you know, didn't know anything. I don't I don't even yeah. know that Jay Carney actually knew all that much. Jeff was working on it with Gavin DeBecker, his uh, his private investigator and was handling it himself. And, you know, yeah. he certainly wasn't going to, you know, lie down on the couch and tell me what he was thinking at, at the time. So it was <laughs> it was, you know, I mean, luckily in. There, there was a there were a number of court cases that emerged. There were, you know, statements and sworn depositions and and lots of evidence. And then and then people around the, the edges of the case that had insights. And so it was just a matter of talking to everybody I could and trying to tear away a little bit of the of, of some of the things that maybe there was no basis, in fact, for, you know, like the Saudi angle. And, and I, I really like investigated that. And and there's and. It's plausible, but there's really no evidence to show 
uh, that not only that Bezos's phone was hacked, but even if it was that any of the of the of the contents of his of his phone made their way to the National Enquirer, the Enquirer got sued a couple of times. So so the sworn statements of the editor and the reporter, you know, and and everybody who worked on the story was entered into evidence. The FBI looked at it, and there was really no evidence that that the tip had come from anyone other than Michael Sanchez. Yeah, which, which is, is still just so bizarre crazy so okay brad i know the book was actually published in 2021 we're getting to it a little bit late in 2022 but um you know you continue obviously to write for bloomberg and for business week and there have been a ton of other really interesting tech stories in the last you know six to 12 months particularly as the market has taken a dive from you know twitter and elon to ftx i I do want to ask you about one uh kind of vc content marketing related thing you wrote about in regard to the the sequoia ftx profile but what's your thought on kind of where tech is today and where we're going? What yeah. are the big themes that you're tracking as we go into 2023? First of all, I want to say that I spent the first couple of months of this year updating Amazon Unbound. A paperback came out over the summer. It we, it takes you right up into the Andy Jassy tenure. I also did a, a podcast for Bloomberg. It was a season of our, our foundering podcast, and it's it's called The Amazon Story, and it's based on material from both books and tells a lot of the same stories that we've been talking about. It's been a dramatic year. I mean, Becky, we've both been in, in Silicon Valley now for, I don't want to date us, but a couple of decades, and yep. it's a cyclical industry. And we've seen you know ups and downs and ups and downs, and we're certainly like you know, in a lot of respects, in a in a down right now. Um, massive layoffs across companies that had grown too optimistically during the the pandemic that are contending with high interest rates and and slowing kind of consumer demand. And I think you know there's going to be a, a little blood on the floor and um, a winnowing down of startups and maybe some um, consolidation. You know, some bankruptcies. It, it makes it as journalists, it's a fun time to cover. Um, not just because of the bad news, but because it's also these are the periods where interesting things seem to spring up, right? Uber and Airbnb uh, both had their roots in the in the financial crisis of two thousand eight. And you look at things right now, and like there's there is some exciting things. the The new wave of generative AI services like Dolly and uh, Chat GPT. Um, super, super interesting. And it's probably going to be a grim 2023. And yet it's kind of a good time to spot the next new thing. When does your book on um, SPF come out? Because... <laughs> no, that's Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis beat you to that, Brad. Yeah, no, there, oh, I think there really? are a number. He oh, is, yeah. <laughs> I think there are a number of, there are a number of, uh, there will be a number of good crypto books and FTX books that, that come out over the next couple of years. And the story is rich. I, you know, because I just finished updating Amazon Unbound, I, I don't have a project underway. I, I'm writing, I have an upcoming uh, Business Week story on Elon and Twitter. That's consuming a lot of our time at, at Bloomberg. It feels like Elon exerts a Trump-like hold on uh, on our imagination and news cycle right now. And so it's, it's yes. hard to, and there are a number of great Elon Twitter books that'll be published too. I thought you wrote kind of a smart piece about Sam Bankman Freed and FTX that sort of related to some of the comm strategies that those of us in the PR world are now employing 
you know, we, we everybody feels like they've got to have their own content operation now, whether you're a VC or you're a company. But I think maybe the downside of those content operations was highlighted with FTX. And then we've had the more recent news about, you know, I'm not sure what's going on, just what I read in Business Insider, what's going on with the future publication at right. Andreessen. I mean, do you have thoughts about are companies going to change the way they think about those in light of the downturn and what's happened recently? I have a, a lot of thoughts, and it's probably a much longer discussion. In fact, it could be a cool kind of discussion to have as like a community of, of comms and professionals and journalists. But, but essentially, a couple of years ago, as you know, there, there was a feeling probably among investors and entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley that the press was too adversarial. And it, it led to more right home generated content. And Andreessen Horowitz kind of led, led the paved the way a little bit. And some other firms felt maybe a little competitive. And everybody has tried their own approach. And for Sequoia, there was a bet on on long form features. And they authorized this hagiographic hey take on SBF that unfortunately published a couple of weeks before the whole thing fell apart. And it was like a fifteen thousand word you know, so exuberantly written, you know, portrayal of him that suggested he might be the first trillionaire. And after the he the the company collapsed, they just erased it from their website. You know, and for me it was there it illustrated in a couple of ways, I think, the value of professional journalism. I mean, first of all, I'm fully capable of writing sentences that are as over the top as some of the sentences in that in that Sequoia story. But my editor would call me and laugh at me and then and then take a red pen and strike it out. And so I felt like, well, actually, you know, the writer of that story is a great writer. His editor failed him. And then afterwards, Sequoia just disappears the story. And of course, as as you guys know, that we would, you know, you would never do that at a, at a professional publication. So there are a number of ways as that these company or, or VC firm sponsored websites are professing to be or to offer journalistic content, but kind of fail the reader and the journalist in a, in a number of important ways. I find that so interesting just because the premise seems to be people are doing this, starting their own operations because they think the press is too negative. And at least from my vantage point at my firm, I view it as a complementary operation to promote companies with technologies that I don't think the mainstream press will be interested in. I have a funny, I think, opinion about this that might not be the same as like maybe more traditional marketers, but I've always liked traditional media because I always felt like something about the third party validation gave it a little bit more credibility. And so while I advise people on where earned media makes sense and while I think it, there is a place for it, there's, I mean, you know, to your point, there are things that just media will never care about, but there's a certain audience for it that's incredible. But I do think that you know, journalism. And I think that this is where as comms people, we talk a lot about this is like, our job is to find where our company interests are aligned with a journalist's interests. So like, this journalist wants to tell a story, we have a story to tell, you know, somewhere in the middle, it works. And when it works in the middle is when you get a really great story that's good for both, you know, both of us. Now, not all that's probably usually pseudo puff piece, but that's, that, that's the point I'm trying to make here is, and so I think that there's a place for all of these things. I think what has happened is it's kind of like when you can't get a puff piece, there's a reason for it. <laughs> I think that there's something to be said about why third-party validation still holds 
the merit that it does, it's because it's validated, right? right. And so right. if you can, if I could write whatever I wanted and no one would check me, trust me, guys, I'd have a whole story to tell you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It'd be right. quite positive. It would be quite, be yeah, positive. I think, but to your point, Brad, I think it does. I agree with both of you that it in some sense just validates the fact or highlights the fact that real journalism continues to be very important. It's the flip side of that is that the, obviously there've been a lot of layoffs in the press and the tech press right. recently, That's which true. has been really sad. So hopefully things get better. I mean, to Kiana's point, if you're really just going to sort of self-validate, maybe actually in the end, you're not really serving anyone because it's not just it's not really that compelling co content there's there's not a re th there's value in the skepticism that and and the craft that journalists bring mm -hmm. i mean this is why uh what is the twitter handle vcs congratulating themselves i mean <laughs> they're, they're truly they're doing the lord's work out there yeah 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 but they don't need to write but chat gpt can write all the articles now we they're going to do exactly. our next podcast right we're That's not going to do it That's by right. ourselves oh i don't have to do okay. i don't have to do anything anymore no i'm just gonna put my feet up okay well this has been amazing. Brad, you're incredible. Thank you so much. If you guys have not read the book, Amazon Unbound, it's an awesome audible paperback, all of the things. Definitely go check it out. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Brad. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Just Checking In. Follow us at, at Kiana Corliss and at Rebecca Buckman. Just Checking In is a StudioPod media production. Our producer is Teresa Buchanan, and our show coordinators are Nicole Genova and Alex Karkos. <laughs>